Well, I invite you to turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. In order to help you follow along in the sermon, uh, there is a handout that is available uh, in the the bulletin. And uh, also, uh, I'll be using a PowerPoint uh, here today. Uh, I want to thank you for your uh, walking along with us through some of the sound issues that we've had so far. I've got three mics uh, here uh, ready to go, so if one doesn't work, I'll try the other. If that doesn't work, the third. If that doesn't work, I'm going to yell. Okay, but it's got to be loud enough so they can hear me over in the chapel, so just be prepared. I'm, I'm warning you. Uh, if you walk out, I'll know what's going on, so thank you for that. I'm so thankful for our sound workers. They're just so wonderful to try to figure out all these challenges and issues here. Uh, This morning we're going to look at a very important passage from God's Word about the birth of Jesus, probably one of the most well-known passages on the birth of Jesus, Luke chapter 2. It's quite interesting to me to see the different ways that people in our culture respond to celebrating the birth of Jesus at Christmas. Of course, uh, I could reflect with you on how many people in our world and country, unfortunately, have problems with celebrating the birth of Jesus. Even celebrating his birth today can be seen by some as being intrusive, intolerant, and unloving. Accordingly, some people in our culture might even warn Christians, Christians, to be careful how they celebrate the birth in order to avoid exclusive claims about religion or salvation. They might tolerate Christmas as a, um, as a holiday, a cultural holiday with Santa and trees and Christmas lights and stockings hung around a tree, but they cast off its religious significance. Instead of focusing on these opinions, however, I want to focus on uh, a better, better responses to the birth of Jesus uh, this morning. I, I was recently reading about a small boy's response to Jesus. The little boy is named Ben. He was, uh, when the story was told, uh, he was 20 months old, just a little child. Little Ben woke up on Christmas Day and ran down to meet his parents in the living room. As he began to look around, he found two new things he had not, never seen before. He saw presents under the tree, and he saw a little baby doll uh, wrapped in swaddling clothes in the manger scene in the room. His parents had been explaining to him for the last several months uh, what uh, they were going to be celebrating with the birth of a very special baby. And so as little Ben saw the presents and the baby in the manger scene, he immediately turned to the manger. He saw the manger, reached for the doll, picked it up, cuddled it, and patted it on the backside, drawing it to himself. As a matter of fact, many times through the next few days, according to his parents, he did the same thing. He would draw the baby in, pat it, snuggle it. You see, to the 20-month child, the baby in the manger drew more attention than the presence. Now Ben's response poses a question for each one of us here at Christmas time. The question is how should we respond 
to the birth of Jesus. Is there a right way and a wrong way to respond? When God looks down upon this earth, into our living rooms, into our homes, to see the way we respond, what is he expecting? What is he looking for? In other words, does it matter how we respond to Jesus this Christmas? And this morning, we are going to look at a passage that answers that question specifically. That's what we're going after. One answer to that question. We are going to consider a text where when you get to the middle or end of this text, you, you come to a place where we will weigh different responses to the birth of Jesus, and I will suggest a proper way forward. Okay, so in Luke chapter 2, this is a familiar text, right? It's one we know. It's my belief that there is, uh, there is uh, very important revelation for us about how we should respond to the birth of Jesus. As we look at this passage, I'll, I believe we can draw the focus of this passage around two points. Two points. We'll see the sovereignty of God displayed in the birth of Jesus, and then uh, we will see uh, the response that we're talking about throughout here as well. So We'll start with the sovereignty of God. Uh, we'll see that in the setting. Look in your Bibles at Luke chapter 2, verse 1. It says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. In the first two verses of this chapter, we're introduced to two characters uh, involved in the historical situation of Jesus. The first one is Caesar Augustus, the second one, Quirinius. Now, uh, we don't know much about Quirinius, as you can see even by the way I pronounce his name. Uh, we don't know much about him historically. There's not much given about him, but there is a lot of information given about Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus, of course, was a very important Roman em emperor. He was the nephew and adopted son of Julius Caesar. Caesar Augustus ruled Rome by himself for 40 years, which was just an amazing amount of time for rulers during this time. He ruled from 27 BC to 14 AD right, the flip of the calendar. And if you're considering the birth of Christ, his rule was a time of peace, and that was very significant because of the condition that was necessary for the spread of the good news of Jesus Christ. This is a great time for Jesus to be born and for the, the gospel to go out during this peaceful reign of Caesar. Um, God made Caesar's time peaceful, and that aided the spread of the gospel, but God used Caesar's rule in another important way as well. Caesar Augustus was also a very proud man, a very proud man by anyone's standards. He was obsessed with measuring the wealth and the scope of his own administration. And so often in his reign, he would register the entire population in a census. A census would list the names and properties of all people within Rome's reach 
primarily for the purposes of taxation and also possible military service. And according to one Roman historian, this is what I want to point out to you about his arrogance. According to one Roman historian by the name of Tacitus, it says that uh, Caesar Augustus kept tally of the census uh, by hand in his own leisure. Here, his personal interest uh, in the magnitude and scope of his own administration is, is well documented. And I find it very ironic that this is the ruler that God used to get Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem to fulfill prophecy. You see, the Messiah of the Israelite people had to be born in a little town in Bethlehem. And God used the overreaching, power-grabbing leadership of this pagan ruler to prepare the way for Joseph and Mary to come to the little town of Bethlehem. So one of the lessons we learn here in the Christmas story is that God uses even the whims and movements of wicked rulers to accomplish his goals. I think sometimes in our own world and culture, we fail to see that, don't we? We fail to see and remember that God is using the movements of the rulers of this age to accomplish his own purposes. In this text, God uses the decree of this Caesar we not only see the sovereignty of God in the setting, we see it in the, the birth. As we look down in verses 4 and 5, we can learn more about the journey from Nazareth to the small town where Jesus was born. Uh, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the city of David, and uh, Bethlehem was well known for not only being the birthplace of Jesus, but this was the place where uh, the future Messiah would be born. I want to read one passage with you. This is Micah chapter 5, verses 2 through 4. This is in the Old Testament part of your Bible, the beginning of your Bible. And here, 700 years before Jesus is born, Micah says this. It says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be clothed among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be a ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. And he will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And so God was sovereign. He was provident over Caesar, who demanded this journey to Bethlehem. He was sovereign over the fulfillment of prophecies from 700 years before. Now, one of the most perplexing questions in the Christmas story, though, is why Mary felt compelled to go with Joseph to Bethlehem. Can you imagine? Over 90 miles on foot or on a donkey, nine months pregnant? Why did she feel compelled to do that? And as I studied that this week and, and got into that, you know, I, what I will say are a few things. Uh, I'll say we, we are not aware of any requirement or expectation for women to accompany men during times of taxation and registration during this time. Whether Mary herself was aware that her son had to be born in Bethlehem, we're also not aware of. What we can be confident of, however, 
is that God planned it all out. God was sovereign over the setting of the birth of Jesus in this little city of David. We can also see his sovereignty in verses 6 and 7, the birth itself. Look at verse 6. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. This is the entire birth narrative. Two simple verses. Uh, Now, these verses, uh, as I said, are simple, they're unembellished, and they come at a quick pace. Uh, Any mother who's ever given birth, I guess every mother has given birth, uh, any woman in the room (laughs) who's ever given birth will know it doesn't come at a quick clip like this. Okay. In the simple birth narrative, Mary does three things here. She gives birth to Jesus, she wraps him in strips of cloth to properly care for him, and she lays him in a manger. Now, when we tell the story of Jesus, we glamorize it, right? And in some ways, rightfully so. But the actual account here is quite simple, and the setting itself is far from what we expect or how we might expect God's Son to be treated. I mean, think about this and I'm sure you have before. This is God's son. This is the firstborn of all creation, the creator of the universe, the maker of heaven and earth, the king of kings and lord of lords. This is the second person of the Trinity, the radiance of the Father's glory. How should we expect he would be received? Philip Graham Ryken, one commentator, says it well. Jesus deserved to have every person from every nation come and worship him. He deserved to have every creature in the entire universe, from the fiercest lion to the tiniest insect, come to the cradle and give him praise. End quote. He deserved birth in a mansion or a palace, surrounded by a host of people who would properly care for him. But what kind of welcome did he actually receive? Well, he was put in a manger, a feeding trough, in a shelter for animals. Perhaps one of the greatest paradoxes the world has ever seen. The baby Jesus pillowed his his head his first night where oxen had been eating days before. This is the obscure, humble beginnings of the Son of God. Yet this is a Savior who will save all types of people from their sin. One of the things I've noted about the Gospel of Luke from which we're reading, as you read through it, as you pay attention, more than any other of the four Gospel writers, Luke emphasizes the approachability of Jesus. The approachability of Jesus. Jesus came to seek and save the what? Or the who? The lost. Jesus came in this Gospel to help the poor and the outcasts of society. Anyone. A few years ago, I remember watching the funeral procession of Queen Elizabeth. Most of the world watched that at that time. And perhaps you remember the formality and the regality of the funeral procession with the Queen. Could you imagine if you were invited to partake or celebrate, not celebrate, to, to memorialize her with the family? How comfortable would you feel? You're like, I hope I don't mess up. 
I hope no one understands and knows that I actually don't fit in with this crowd. The same is not true of Jesus. Men and women, you don't have to matter. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. It doesn't matter if you're an officer or a felon. Jesus came to save you, and he can relate to you entirely. This is the powerful son of God who experienced a humble birth in a little town, in an animal room, in a feeding trough. Yet his father, heavenly father, was directing things according to his own sovereign plan so that the savior of all people would be born. And so that's how I understand the first seven verses, right? God's sovereignty in Jesus' birth. From there, we leave for a brief moment from the manger scene, and we go out to a field. And this is where we begin to see the different responses to the birth of Jesus. The different responses. And in particular, we're going to see the way heavenly and earthly beings respond to Jesus' birth. If in your Bible you're wanting a way to remember the birth scene and, and, and what follows and, and how to keep all these things together, really you could write one word over verses 8 through 20, the word response. That's what this is about. Basically, fundamentally, it's about responses, the way people respond. And it will help us answer the question we started the sermon with. So Luke starts with the heavenly response, verses 8 through 14. Look there in your Bible. It says, In the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he's pleased. So again, the scene changes quickly. We leave the animal room in the inn to a field where we meet an entirely new cast of characters. It starts with the shepherds. The shepherds themselves represent the lowliest of society. They were considered unclean uh, in Jewish circles because of their occupation itself and because they would be touching animals. Shepherds were treated as the lowliest people in their culture uh, except for lepers who were entirely excluded. Yet God, in his wisdom and providence, affords to these men, these shepherds, the greatest or highest of all privileges. Secondly, in the text, we're introduced to uh, the angel of the Lord. Here, this angel appears to the shepherds, and he's accompanied by the glory of God. The glory of God, the bright presence of God's being. I'm sure the shepherds in this evening were shocked. You say, how can you be sure of that? Well, the text says they were filled with great fear. Very powerful statement. That is, they were terrified greatly. The word for greatly comes from a root that we would get our word mega. They had mega fear. 
when they see this angel. But God is not set on making these shepherds afraid. Instead, he steadies their fear and through the angel proclaims and announces good news of great joy. You see that in your Bible? Good news of great joy. The gospel of great joy. Here the word great also comes from the word mega. The great mega fear is to be replaced with great joy. Great joy at the birth of this son. The good news is about the birth of a savior, deliverer for the people, who is the Christ, right? The Messiah, the special anointed ruler of Israel, and he is the Lord. He is the sovereign ruler over creation. That's what this angel says. And, and then a whole host of new characters appear in the sky. Verse 13 is just really powerful with this word. Suddenly, unexpectedly, a whole host of heavenly angels chime in. All right, so you get the shepherds, you got one angel, glory of God, that's overwhelming enough. God says, don't have great fear, have great joy, and then boom! Right? The heavens explode. And these heavenly hosts chime in. And they're all praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he's pleased. In verses 8 through 14, we have the response of heavenly beings to the birth of Jesus. I'm sure all of heaven stirred likely at this incredible movement and moment in time as these angels descended down to earth to respond to a Savior being born. Now I want to draw your attention to one thing in these verses, one thing I didn't point out, and that's what the angel actually said initially. He says, for unto you a child is born. It's not the normal way to announce a birth. It's normally unto Joseph or unto Mary a child is born. No, it's for unto you a child is born. A savior in the city of David. I think the testimony of these heavenly beings encourage response from the shepherds. Unto you, unto all the peoples of the earth, this child is born. And that's where we head next. The human response, or the response of human beings. Verses 15 through 20. So there's one last scene here in the birth story of Christ where we, resp- we see how human beings respond. Some better, some worse. Look at verse 15. And when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and a baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning the child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, considering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. Now, in these verses, Luke describes the earthly response to the birth of Jesus, and I think there's something for us to learn from the response of every person or group of people. First, the shepherds. 
after the angels and the glory of God disappear in the darkness of night in the field, the shepherds decide to go down to Bethlehem to check everything out. And when they get there, they find it just as the angel had told them. A baby in swaddling cloths in an animal room in a manger. And all of this was too much for the shepherds. So that they become the first evangelists of the good news of Jesus Christ. The text says they went around telling everyone about what happened concerning the birth of Jesus. And that they eventually returned to their fields at the end of the text, verse 20, glorifying and praising God for everything he had revealed to them. In some, if I were to summarize the shepherd's response, I would do it uh, like this. It was joyful proclamation and worship. That's how they responded to the birth of Jesus. Joyful proclamation and worship. So, in response to the increasing secular pressure on us to mute our praise or to enjoy it silently, privately, we should learn from these shepherds. We should respond with the joy of evangelists announcing the most important and only true message of salvation that this world has ever experienced. The birth of this baby Jesus. But, the text also describes the response of the people of Bethlehem and, and all around. In verse 18, it says, All who heard what the shepherds were saying wondered at what they were saying. Now, this is the response we might expect, right? They were astonished, right? They wondered. They marveled. They were amazed, wondering, what's the significance of all of this stuff? But as we consider their response, I, I would just say this, being amazed or wondering at the birth of God's Son is good, but it stops short of what the rest of the Gospel of Luke would tell us. If you keep reading this Gospel, you would see that Luke calls his readers to belief. You see, astonishment at something is nothing unless it leads to belief. You could be astonished at something in the moment, and then you could eventually talk yourself out of it. Reason yourself away from it. Well, maybe, maybe, okay, I know what those shepherds, I know they were really stoked about this. As if it really happened. But maybe they were deceived. They were astonished. This Christmas, God is calling us to a certain type of astonishment, an astonishment that's accompanied with belief with belief. Do we believe these things about Jesus? And finally, we can see the response of Mary, the mother of Jesus. Near the end of the story, Luke tells us that Mary, the mother of Jesus, treasured up all the events surrounding the birth of her son in her heart. She treasured them up. This is a rare word in the original, not used very often at all. It means something like she preserved these things or held these things in her heart. 
Now, the text tells us a little bit more than that. It says not only that she treasured these things, it says she was pondering them. She was meditating on them. She's considering them in her heart. I, I think Mary's response, what's being described here, speaks of extended or sustained reflection on what had happened. You see, Mary knew some things. She knew she was a virgin and that no man had a part in this birth. She knew that the birth was supernatural. An angel of God told her that. She then had these shepherds coming to her, telling her about a host of angels who were proclaiming that her baby was actually a savior for men and women. Mary's personal and sustained delight on the birth of her son, I believe, was greater than the immediate astonishment of the people of Bethlehem. As we close, Luke records this narrative so that we might respond to the birth of Jesus in the same way as Mary. Will you take a moment this morning away from the distractions of the holiday, the stockings, the snowmen, the gifts, the wrapping, the jingle bells, the Christmas lights, the little drummer boys? Will you take a moment this morning away from those distractions to reflect on the way God orchestrated the events to produce the most important birth of all time. Will you treasure these things up in your heart? Will you ponder the significance of them in your own heart this Christmas? I heard of another little boy who would rewrap presents at the end of Christmas Day each year because he wanted Christmas to last longer, at least through the 26th. <laughs> That's not the way to make the significance of Christ's birth last. The reality is, soon all the decorations will come down. The tree will come down. The ornaments will be put away. But will the birth of Jesus change you? How will you respond to the baby in the manger? Will you truly weigh the importance of this day and believe on Jesus to save you from your sin? For unto us is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Believe on him today and celebrate Christmas in the only acceptable way. Let's pray together. Father, I want to pray especially this morning for people 
perhaps under the sound of my preaching today, who have never believed in the name of Jesus Christ to save them from their sins. Perhaps it's been all the distractions of the Christmas season, the twinkling lights, the presents, the tree, the stockings, all those things that have prevented them from seeing it. Maybe today your spirit is broken through to show them there's only one acceptable way, and that is to treasure these things in our heart like Mary. To ponder them, to think about their true significance, and then believe in the name of Jesus to be saved from their sins. I pray that if there are any of my friends in this room or guests here today who uh, have always enjoyed Christmas as a secular cultural holiday, they enjoy the season and the moments and the gifts and the family and the the presence and the joy, uh, Lord, but they've never seen it as a significant religious event. The birth of a Savior for them. I pray, Lord, they would see that this morning and believe in their heart that you, you not only allowed for Jesus to be born, but you, you allowed him to die on a cross for our sins, and then he was raised according to your power so that those who believe on him would be saved from their sin. May this Christmas be a religious, sacred moment for them where they respond in the only acceptable way. Lord, for those of us who've known Jesus for some time and who have believed on him for our salvation, I pray that we would be not only like Mary, but the shepherds joyfully proclaiming we've got a savior a savior has been given to us might we rejoice in that this christmas in jesus name amen